welcome to Underwritten, a new podcast brought to you by the Association of British Insurers. I'm your host today, Anthony Wright, the Head of Communications for the ABI, and I'm excited to be bringing you the first in a series of podcasts, which would include analysis, interviews and news from the UK's insurance and long-term savings industry. Today, we're going to hear from Hugh Evans, Director General of the ABI, discussing all the big issues affecting the industry, from Brexit to hurricanes to pensions dashboards. We'll also talk a little about the changing nature of risk in the industry and how CEOs are approaching big questions like this. Without further ado, let's get stuck in. Welcome, Hugh Evans, Director General of the ABI. Thanks for taking part in our first podcast. Uh, It's been a busy year. Um, the sun is shining, but there are clouds still in the skies. I don't know whether that's an analogy for it or not, but um, how do you feel the year has gone so far? Well, I'm Welsh, so I'm used to the odd cloud in the sky. It doesn't put me off too much. It's been a pretty busy year so far, obviously, with the general election, working through Brexit, uh, a parliamentary inquiry into Solvency two, to name but a few. But clearly one of the major challenges, if we look at the general insurance market, has been the discount rate announcement from the government back in February, which was undoubtedly a low light, and the more recent progress to establish a reform plan to get a more sensible rate, which has definitely been a highlight of the year, and that's an area we have to continue to focus on. And the long-term savings side, an undoubted highlight has been the work on the pensions dashboard, where the ABI has worked with 16 firms across the market and the government uh, to establish a, a workable prototype for how a dashboard could work in the future that would connect up customers with all their different pension savings pots. And I personally find that a very exciting prospect for the millions of customers out there who use our members to save for their future. And we've got four months left of the year. It's looking pretty busy already. What do you think are the main priorities for you and the ABI to achieve on behalf of the industry? Well, obviously, in some respects, we're working with a new government, with different ministers, uh, on very familiar topics. So I want us to make sure that we focus on key areas where we can make progress. We've talked already about the discount rate and getting that legislation through Parliament, hopefully with the maximum possible support for what is a sensible set of reforms, but also not losing sight of the wider reforms on personal injury, which need to happen if uh, prices for consumers are going to be kept in a decent place. We need to continue to make progress on our work with the PRA to get Solvency 2 in a reasonable state, particularly around reporting requirements. We want to get a commitment from the government to be able to proceed with the dashboard and to actually build on the successful prototype and make that work going forward. And we want to continue and get more momentum in the conversation with ministers about how both health and protection products can play a greater part in meeting the challenges of our state uh, and around helping citizens get more use of insurance products to manage the challenges in their lives. Um, there's lots of challenges in there, but um, we've seen in the last sort of week or so how the unexpected can also be thrown in with Hurricane Irma devastating parts of the Caribbean and Florida. Mm. Um, what do you think an event like this, which puts insurance in the spotlight, uh, means for the industry? Well, it's a reminder, I think, of just the scale of the resilience that the insurance sector provides to businesses and individuals, to countries and to economies. It's been a little while since we've had a a hurricane uh, or a set of hurricanes of this magnitude, but I think what you always get when you get these very huge uh, events that have a global insurance impact is it's a reminder of the scale of the 
support net that the insurance industry is able to provide to economies and to businesses and to, to individuals to rebuild their lives when something as traumatic as a hurricane comes along. And with something like Irma, which has caused terrible devastation, I know that insurers both here and across the world are going to be working flat out to get people back into their homes and to help rebuild those homes, to help businesses recover and to help the governments of those countries put a recovery plan in place as soon as possible. It's a real reminder of why insurance is there and it's also a reminder of how climate change is changing the nature of risk and that's something which the industry is having to deal with. I mean, it's not the only changing risk uh, out there. You look at things like cyber and terror. Um, How do you feel that the industry is responding to all these dramatic shifts in the nature of risk? Well, there's a lot to work through there, isn't there, including for the industry separating out things that it's always dealt with. It's always dealt with hurricanes, um, but working out whether they're happening more regularly, and if so, if climate change is having an impact. And as you say, with things like cyber uh, and terrorism, dealing with a a threat that is changing very dramatically, in particular with cyber, because we're living through a digital revolution, which is akin in its scale and significance to the way in which the Industrial Revolution changed our country 200 years ago. So you know, the, the threat that cyber poses, alongside of course the huge opportunities that the digital revolution brings to our economy and society, is one of the, the biggest areas for the insurance industry to work through. And I think the industry is making real progress in developing its understanding of the types of product it's able to offer and the protection that it can uh, deliver for customers, both corporate and individual. But it's going to take some time yet to fully get our arms around it as an industry and to fully understand the nature of the risk, the interconnectedness, uh, and the to be confident that we are you know, facing the future and understand the way in which these risks may evolve going forward. And, you know, we've been talking of turbulence, and uh, there's been turbulence in the political sphere as well. I think that's uh, understating it, some would say. Um, but, you know, we've had the Brexit... Uh, bill, um, the withdrawal bill passed second reading uh, last night, but with uncertainty across the board, how worried should the industry be about Brexit and the way uh, the process is proceeding? Well, clearly the Brexit process is incredibly challenging inherently. No country of our size and scale has left the European Union before. And we have 40 years' worth of laws and regulation and interoperability to uh, unwind in some cases or to sort of continue in others, as well as clearly a political uh, negotiation about the future relationship between the UK and the rest of the European Union. So I don't think anyone who's close to it underestimates the scale of the challenge and the complexity of it. I think quite rightly... Insurers and long-term savings providers who are most affected by these changes have not waited for you know, huge political sort of agreements to sort of take decisions about how they can best serve their clients and customers going forward. What we've seen over the last year are insurers taking very early and decisive action to ensure that they have the structure in place to be able to serve their clients and customers after 2019. And so I think... From an industry, there's still a huge amount that needs to be worked through the Brexit process, 
including how contracts work after Brexit, uh, including how things like the health insurance works across the European Union and the UK, uh, how motoring works, both commercial and personal. But in terms of the way in which firms have to be structured to meet their customers' needs, I think quite rightly insurers have got on with making the changes that they need to make and be prepared for all outcomes of the political negotiations. And, you know, are you optimistic uh, about the outcome uh, on Brexit in the long term? I mean, we saw uh, yesterday um, an index of competitiveness put London at the top, um, you know, whether or not uh, London will stay there post-Brexit, we don't know. Um, uh, do you feel that there is still a you know, positive vision for the city and for the insurance sector in London? Well, clearly the London insurance sector and the wider uh, financial and professional services sort of cluster, particularly in London, but actually in the insurance sector's case spread across the United Kingdom. Two-thirds of people who work for the insurance industry actually work outside of London and the South East. Clearly, we have a very significant concentration in a world-leading sector in this country, and it's therefore possible to say, well, that gives us the best possible foundation on which to build a, a brighter future, and I think that's what everyone is focused on. In the near term, I don't think anyone is rosy-eyed about the formidable challenges that are posed by exiting the single market and coming away from, as I say, a very detailed and intricate uh, interoperability with the rest of the European Union and that's a formidable challenge for everyone concerned at the political level at the commercial mm -hmm. level and I think where politicians and business leaders agree is the most important thing is to try and make sure that customers are not uh, disadvantaged and that in due course the UK is able to establish both a very constructive close partnership with the European Union but also take advantage potentially of some uh, trading opportunities particularly in the emerging economies um, uh, as a result of uh, some of the opportunities that are available. Mm, it's, it, there's obviously lots of work to do, both for the industry, for the government, for everybody involved, but, um, and the questions remain how much scope there will be for the government to do anything else other than Brexit. But um, we have seen some positive uh, signs on this from the industry point of view in terms of a commitment to do something on the discount rate and the civil justice bill. Um, so some causes for optimism there, but but both will you know both will have to get through Parliament. Uh, how do you feel the prospects of that are looking? Well, I've met quite a few ministers since the general election in June, and I've been struck talking to all of them by how much appetite they have to do non-Brexit work, <laughs> and to use this session uh, of Parliament uh, to actually drive through change and reform in in other areas. Clearly, part of our role and the industry and other bodies like ours to sort of do everything we can to help politicians and parliamentarians do that. Uh, that partly means coming up with solutions, not just problems. That partly means rallying support for measures that we want to see uh, put through Parliament. And I think it involves, you know, perhaps being a bit more constructive and creative than we have done in the past. Clearly, when you're in a hung Parliament situation. Uh, and there's a huge challenge like Brexit being navigated through Parliament, it's important to have as much consensus and partnership as you can behind the things that you would like to deliver for customers. And I think it's even more important for us, therefore, over the next period to build alliances and build support for the things that we want to do and demonstrate how they will benefit uh, 
uh, people in the street and businesses uh, in a way that uh, a wider range of people and just insurers can support them. And, you know, we'd, we talked there about some uh, asks that we have uh, and some progress we've been making on the German insurance side, but uh, on the long-term savings side, we've also made significant progress, you mentioned it earlier, uh, with the pensions dashboard, we produced a mm -hmm. prototype. Um, lots of warm noises from government and from everybody involved, but um, to take it to the next step, what needs to happen? Well, we need a clear commitment from government that is prepared to maintain its level of sponsorship and engagement. Uh, we need a commitment from government to uh, work with us to find a way to ensure that all pension schemes can ultimately be part of a, a pensions dashboard. There's no point having a dashboard where you're looking at pensions, but you can only actually access half of what's available. And we need, would obviously need to agree a realistic timescale and a way of managing such a project. All those things are deliverable because what the prototype showed us is that the IT can work and there is a way in which anyone can use any app they like to uh, put in some very basic details, their national insurance number and their date of birth and their address and be able to pull together all their different pension uh, information in one place. And that's hugely valuable for customers going forward, particularly following auto-enrolment where you know, people can typically expect to have between seven and nine pension schemes throughout their life. We have to, as a, a, both an industry and a government, find a way to enable people to keep track of those pension schemes and be able to take sensible decisions about how much they need to save for their retirement in the light of the data that they're able to access. So that's hugely important. But there are other areas, of course, that, that matter too. Making sure that auto-enrolment can continue to be a success and... Uh, where necessary, changing some of the ways in which it operates to bring more people in, to enable people to start being auto-enrolled younger and to be able to carry on doing it later and to be able to get pay increases taken into account, to continue to make assess of the freedom and choice reforms that were introduced by George Osborne three years ago and ensure that those continue to provide customers with the appropriate level of freedoms but also good decision making. Uh, and to make sure that we can move to a better system of helping people through the decision-making process. So there's a huge amount of work in the long-term saving side, but it is going in the right direction, I think. Talking of uh, savings, you know, we've got a budget coming up at the end of uh, November, we think, though we don't know yet, and um, one thinks that uh, uh, the Chancellor will have to be making some savings um, and uh, we'll be looking to spend some money, perhaps raised via tax. Are you concerned that another insurance premium tax rise could be on the way or even uh, something on pensions tax relief? What's your take on it at this stage? I know it's a long way out. Yeah, on pensions tax relief, I mean, clearly David Gork, the pensions, Work and Pensions Secretary, said at our own conference in July that he felt that fundamental reform to pensions tax relief would be very difficult indeed, given the parliamentary numbers. But that may not uh, prohibit some sort of slicing and dicing of the existing framework rather than more fundamental reform. And clearly we saw that happen quite a lot in the coalition government 2010 to 2015. And it can you know, deliver some reasonable savings for the government. I would hope they don't go down that route because I think every time they do that they make the system even more complex to navigate for people. Uh, in terms of insurance premium tax, clearly we've seen very significant increases in recent years. It's a, it was the biggest source of revenue for the Treasury from the 2015 summer budget. 
is relatively quick to introduce and uh, they're in the happy position that they don't even have to collect it, the insurers collect it on their behalf. So there's plenty about IPT that the Treasury loves, um, but it is nonetheless a tax on people who are doing the responsible thing and they need to protect themselves, their possessions, their businesses, their health, uh, and avoid putting that responsibility back onto the state. So I think as an industry, we absolutely have to redouble our efforts, as we will be doing at the ABI, to do everything we can to illustrate the downsides of putting IPT up and making, as we have been, common calls with business groups and wider interest groups to illustrate that actually every time IPT goes up, it has a detrimental impact on people uh, and it puts people off buying insurance that ultimately saves the government money. So we have to make that argument and continue to make it over the months and years ahead. We talked about some of the issues that uh, we raise with government week in, week out, uh, and you know we're, we're there trying to get our voice heard uh, on behalf of the industry and behalf of our members. Uh, but so are many others. Ha- uh, many other bodies are, are doing similar things. How do we ensure that our voice is heard and we remain relevant to policymakers and politicians going forward? Well, it's a vital challenge, as you say. The most important thing I will think is to be able to put solutions on the table. Politicians, the people who work for them, the civil servants, and parliamentarians in general are time-poor people. They don't have time for sectors that just go in and whinge, but don't actually have any constructive ideas to uh, offer them. And so where I'm most proud of what we've done, whether it's through Floodery or the Pensions Dashboard, which we've led at the ABI on behalf of the industry, is we've worked hard with government, often painfully hard, to find ways forward to actually get things done. And I think that's the key to be able to sort of work constructively uh, with government and with parliament and be able to exchange the sort of range of views that you need, often brutally honest views about what's needed. And if we look at some of the challenges we face going forward as a country, whether it's the ageing society and long-term care, whether it's the chronic under-protection that we have of people in the workplace with protection and health insurance, um, whether we look at some of the challenges that face uh, our businesses and our people in terms of general insurance, and whether it's cover against flood or fire, you know, these are things that have to be solved by the industry and the uh, government and parliament working closely together. And uh, that can only be achieved, in my view, by an honest, constructive partnership uh, which focuses on solutions together rather than a more attritional, aggressive relationship. And, you know, so we talked about some of the issues facing the industry as a whole. Um, are these the same issues that the CEOs that you talk to week in, week out? Uh, those that sit on our board uh, and on our committees. Are these the same issues that they're grappling with? Uh, are there different issues that they're sort of raising with you? I think for, for many of the, the CEOs that I work with day in, day out, you know, managing the regulatory burden and challenges is, is a significant one for them, both obviously on an individual firm level with their supervisors, but also when you get really big challenges like the general data protection regulation that comes in next May, European data, new European data regulation, The impacts that that has on businesses and the way in which the systems have to operate are very, very significant. And it's an important part of our role to be able to reflect back to regulators and wider policymakers the operational impact of regulation, which looks absolutely fine and sensible on a page, but which, if not done properly, can actually cause very significant uh, and unnecessary operational disruption for firms, which ultimately doesn't benefit customers. So there's always that sort of discussion about how regulation is working in practice and where we need to get it to, which features. Um, 
as does obviously the political uncertainty and the, the sort of uncertainty for customers caused by Brexit, general elections and, and so on. But I'm also struck how most CEOs in the industry, whichever part of the industry they work in, are looking to harness the digital revolution and are very excited by it in terms of what it means in terms of the types of proposition they can offer customers going forward, the potential to engage in a closer and more dynamic relationship with customers, and also to be able to increasingly help uh, in the general insurance sector prevent risk rather than just come in to help people mm -hmm. when they have uh, dealt with it, just as in the long-term savings sector it offers the opportunity to engage with people in a much more dynamic way about their their retirement saving, uh, simply than just the, the old system of sending them a letter uh, when they were approaching retirement, telling them to buy an annuity. So there are huge opportunities here for the industry in terms of the way in which it engages with customers, which I think excites most of the CEOs in the market that mm. I talk to. Grappling with change across the board. Last question. Um, you've been in the job now as Director General uh, for two and a half years. Uh, what is the thing you're most proud of uh, having achieved since you've been here? And, you know, don't necessarily have to answer this, but is there anything you'd have done differently? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, it's two and a half years as DG and, and nine years coming up to us at the ABR, which makes me feel old. Um, uh, I'm, I'm really proud of having been able to sort of carry on what Otto Torreson uh, did before me, which is to sort of build a much closer relationship, I think, between the ABI and a full range of its members. Uh, and a deeper relationship with many of the people within those those firms because um, I think to do your job and to be able to engage really effectively with the government and with regulators and internationally you need to be in pretty close contact with your members and have a great team of people working with you who can actually sort of make that happen uh, and I'm, I'm proud of the way in which I think we've been able to do that in recent years and I think that's manifested itself whether in floodery which I'm personally very proud of, it's still in its early days, uh, whether it's in the sort of progress we've been able to make after a difficult start on something like the discount rate, or in the work that we've, we've done together with the industry to make the freedom and choice reforms work for customers after you know, not being given any warning that they were coming. So there are lots of different things I look at where I, I can see evidence that we've made a difference, uh, and where we've rolled our sleeves up and got stuck in, and ultimately, and the most important thing, our customers, whether they're personal customers, whether they're business customers, uh, are getting a better relationship and a better engagement with the sector as a result. Our sector is so vital to the healthy running of an economy, a society, as well as obviously a very important employer that helps the economy throughout the United Kingdom, you know, that we have to just continue to sort of build on that progress and make sure that we are doing everything we can to maximise our impact and our ability to serve our customers well. So, uh, Hugh, I can't let you off. You uh, avoided saying the one thing you would do differently. Ah, damn, you noticed it. Okay. <laughs> um, I think the thing you learn the longer you run an organisation, this is the first one that I've run, is, is how to balance being involved and being a, sort of a hands-on and engaged CEO with uh, not being so hands-on that your team can't actually get on and do what they're all very good at doing. And you, you get a better sense of how best to do that. You know, I think if you... If you're constantly grabbing the steering wheel, then it, you alarm all the, pass, all the passengers. Uh, that's not a good way to, to run an organisation. So I think the thing I've learnt and developed most in the last couple of years is that better balance between things that I lead on and get most involved in and things that I'm 
you know, the rest of the team lead on, uh, keeping me in the loop, but I'm not constantly sort of sticking my nose in every five minutes, checking that everything's being done properly. And I think for most CEOs, where they're running something big, small, or in the middle, that's the thing that you develop over time that you just don't have on day one. Hugh, uh, thanks very much for your time. I know you've got to go. We may speak again soon in the future, but uh, for now, thanks. Thanks very much. So there you have it, an interesting discussion to kick off this podcast series. We're going to be looking for new content and ideas as this podcast evolves. So if you have something you'd like to discuss or hear discussed or even like to come on yourself, uh, please get in touch. We have an email address, podcast at abi.org.uk. That's podcast at abi.org.uk. And if you do like this podcast please share it on social media or like on itunes and all the other podcast platforms that are out there so for now until next time goodbye <laughs>